the greatest joy in life, the greatest joy in life is to know Jesus Christ. I'm unapologetic in saying that. There are many great things out there. Marriage, kids, poutine. Yeah. There are many joyful things out there. But the primary reason every one of us exists is to know Jesus and to enjoy him forever. That is the highest good. That is why we exist. This is what we need to know. We need to know Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him as an ancient story? Or do you know him as a fictitious character? Do you know him? Do you enjoy him? Knowing Jesus is central to everything. Yet one of the greatest obstacles in knowing Jesus or knowing him at all is our tendency to depend on our own efforts. One of the greatest barriers in knowing Jesus and knowing him more deeply or knowing him at all is the idea that I can do this. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I got a good thing going. I'm too busy for Jesus. I got enough money. I got enough friends. I'm healthy. The things that I'm doing, who needs Jesus? We must not depend on our own efforts. We must take Jesus as who he is and who he says he is and accept him for who he is. And this is where we are introduced this afternoon to the letter to the Philippian church. We've been going through a year-long series called Gospel Foundations, and we've been trying to teach through some of the central teachings of Christianity. Week after week, who is God? Who are we? What are we to do? What is the church? What is a Christian? Today I want to talk about knowing Christ. And this is why the letter to the Philippian church was written. It was written by a man named Paul. He was in prison. This prison doesn't have flat screen TVs and three meals a day. If you're in prison, not only is it stigmatized and socially unacceptable, and the Philippian church that he's writing to could just forget him, there's a chance that he could be executed and death is imminent. Yet he's writing this letter to this church, one of the church that, churches that Paul has started, his very first church, that by the grace of God he started. He's writing this letter telling them to rejoice in Jesus, to know Jesus more. And that's what much of the New Testament is. They're actually letters. If you've never read the Bible, you might think, the Bible is just a series of rules of do's and don'ts. But they're very personal, very intimate. He's writing to people. He's writing to people like you and me who have struggled. And so this is written. Paul had encountered Jesus 30 years earlier as Paul is a, essentially an anti-Christian terrorist traveling around killing and imprisoning Christians Jesus encounters him on the Damascus Road. 
and says, Paul, why are you doing this to me? In the book of Acts, you can read about this encounter and how Jesus transformed his life. If you've encountered Jesus, he has transformed your life. Paul went from persecuting to church to planting churches. He went from execution to proclamation. His life was totally changed. He started this church in a city called, called Philippi. You can read about in Acts chapter 16. But the first people in this church were a formerly demon. She was demon-possessed. She was healed of her demon possession. A, a jailer. He, he was a jail guard, so like a middle-class dude. And then Lydia. She was a seller of purple goods. So she's very rich. She's got houses in Paris, in France, or I guess it's a same place. In Yukon. So you got this little girl, you got this middle class guy, you got this really rich woman. But it's to show the diversity of the gospels for anybody. And it's been 10 years since that church has started. And he's writing this letter to them from jail. And what a precious letter it must have been to hear from their founding pastor, to hear that he's doing well. And as he's writing this letter, the main theme of it is, I want your priority to be knowing Christ. I want your priority to be knowing Jesus Christ. Laser focus on that. And so this brings us to Philippians chapter 3. We're in the first 11 verses in Philippians chapter 3. And so I'll read a bit, explain a bit, and we'll see where that goes. Sound okay? You really have no choice. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things. And I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ has done for us. I'm going to pause there for a second. Right away he says, rejoice in the Lord. Be glad in Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Jesus is God in the flesh who has paid the penalty of our sin to reconcile us, to bring us back to God, to have a full relationship with him. With him. Us rebels, he came down and substituted his perfect life for our rebellious life for his glory. He says, rejoice in Jesus. This will safeguard your faith because there's people who come here and they have different teachings. They tell you to rely on your ability to keep the law, to keep the rules. And if you do these rules, over 600 of these rules that you can find in the Old Testament, then God will be pleased with you. But Paul is saying, no, this is a false teaching. 
because it puts confidence in what we do and not confidence in Christ. If you could save yourself, if you could avoid hell and have full access to heaven by just keeping the rules, why would you need the gospel? Paul is saying these false teachers are diverting people from Jesus. The system could never save them. The laws could never save them. And Paul holds nothing back in calling these false teachers out. He calls them three things which we're going to dig into. He calls them dogs. He calls them evil. And he calls them mutilators. Dogs, evil, and mutilators. He calls them dogs, these false teachers who are coming in here. And so in first century Israel, during this time, you don't have dogs as pets. You're not teaching them tricks. You're not hanging out with them. These dogs are like foxes. They're just scavengers, and they just eat whatever. They eat whatever. And by calling them dogs, these, these, these people who eat garbage, the Jewish people at the time, they would think, you have to keep a strict dietary law. You can't just eat whatever you want, like a dog. So if you're eating garbage and roadkill and flesh and all these things, you're considered unclean. The ironic thing is, that's what the Jews at the time would call the non-Jews. They would call them dogs. But Paul's saying, you're the dogs. Your heart is unclean. You stress that you need this clean heart, and you do not have it. You are the dogs. Not only are you dogs, you're evil. You're workers of evil. You claim to be workers of the law. You keep all 600 commandments, 600 plus commandments. You say you work the law. You're actually workers of evil because you're diverting people away from God and to dead works. You're dogs, you're evil, and you are mutilators. In the Greek, this, this sentence here, you're evil, you're dogs, you're evil, you're mutilators. It was alliteration in the Greek. They all start with the word K. And so it would be a very like forceful, this, I am not holding anything back in what I call these people. They're evil, they're dogs, they're mutilators. People, the people of God, they wanted to have a clean heart. They wanted to have clean lives. And the people of Israel, which we know as the Jewish people here, they considered you to be a, a person, a follower of God, if you were circumcised. If you were circumcised. And the reason that's not a thing today because it's not a thing today. We do not do that. There is no reason to do that to be accepted in the church. It's because Christ has come to circumcise your heart and give you a new heart. You need a new heart. It's not a physical thing you do. It's an inward spiritual thing, transformation that Jesus Christ accomplishes on our behalf. So when he calls them mutilators, he's comparing them to people in the Old Testament who would hurt themselves, would cut themselves, who would mutilate themselves because they thought, if I do this, and you can read about these things in 1 Kings, that if I do this, if I cut myself, 
if I mutilate myself, then God will act. That's what Paul is calling these false teachers. You are dogs. You are the one who is unclean. You are evil. You are mutilated. And so this Christian author and professor, his name is Peter T. O'Brien, he says this of circumcision. Circumcision, their greatest source of pride is interpreted by the apostle as mutilation, a sure sign that they have no part in God's people at all. They held circumcision in such high esteem that this was your ticket, one of your tickets into becoming the people of God. And Paul is saying, that's mutilation. That's pagan. That's disgusting. No. Why? Why does Paul say this? Verse 3. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ has done for us. We rely on what Christ has done for us. This is a completely, completely radical message to the people of Israel who are strict keepers of the law, who would circumcise and say, it's not what we can do, but what Christ has done for you. And by faith, you are part of God's family. It's not by these efforts. And so what Paul is trying to teach against is something called legalism. And legalism is the idea that if you just do the observances, if you do these external things, then God will love you. If I just go to church more, if I don't swear, and I only watch Christian movies, then God will love me more. These are good things, but these are not why we're accepted by God. We're accepted by God because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And then it changes your heart to desire the things that he desires. And so Paul continues in verse 3. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have made reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So he's saying, if anyone can boast in their own efforts, it's me. And let me read you my resume. I was born inside of a church. My daddy was a pastor. I've read nothing but the King James Bible. I only listen to Christian music. I only eat Christian food, whatever that is. I only drive Christian vehicles. I'm super Christian. And he's saying this. Anyone were to be accepted by God, it's me. And look it, I am at the top of my class. I'm at the top of everything, and you all know it. And so he's, he's presenting his impressive resume, and he's second to no one. So this isn't just exaggeration. Paul is, Paul is legit. And so he presents 
his resume, his gains and his losses. And in the gain category, which is verses 5 to 6, he says a few things. He says four things that he's inherited. He's inherited four privileges, and then he goes on to say, I've done three personal accomplishments. So we'll, we'll just break down what he just said in verses 5 to 6. His four inherited privileges. <coughs> he was circumcised when he was eight days old. That doesn't mean anything to us. If somebody says that to you, you think, you are weird. And why did you tell me that? But to say that then is to say that their parents, his parents, followed the Abrahamic covenant, which is the Old Testament law, so closely that he's like, I'm an eight-dayer. I'm an insider. My parents, look at my parents. They're perfect. And I come from that stock. And then he says, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. Pure-blooded. So he's saying, my genealogy is not mixed with anybody else's blood. I'm a pure line. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I'm not mixed. You can't call me a half-breed. I'm pure-blooded. Thirdly, he says, I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And so there's these 12 tribes that make up Israel. But the tribe of Benjamin, he was the only son born inside the promised land. So God promised this land to God's people. Benjamin is the only one born inside of the promised land. They were the only tribe to remain faithful to their kings after the death of another king named Solomon. And King Saul, who was Israel's first king, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Great King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. The man writing this letter to Philippians, what was his former name? Saul. I'm named after Michael Jordan. I'm named after Wayne Gretzky. I'm pure-blooded. I'm an eight-dayer. And his heritage, it seems, at this point, perfect. And he hasn't even done anything. This is inherited. He says, I'm a real Hebrew, which means he spoke Hebrew and the language Aramaic, when many of his people only spoke Greek. He had the best education he the best instructor named Gamaliel. And so he's an insider before he could say anything. These are the four inherited things. And then his three personal accomplishments. Now he can do stuff. Little Paul drinking milk, eating oats. He becomes a member of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most impressive and the most respected group in Israel. They were like a super denomination. There are about 6,000 members of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees held the strictest law-keeping. They were very, very, very strict in keeping the law, the Pharisees. And he was a member of them. The word Pharisee means separated one. That they're separated from all these unclean people. And they, in fact, distance themselves from these unclean people. 
Paul's ancestors were Pharisees, and he was a Pharisee himself. That's his first accomplishment, to be in the super denomination. Secondly, he said, I was so zealous. I was so zealous for God. I was so zealous for the lives. So much passion for our denomination that I killed Christians. That's how zealous I was. And I had a warrant from the government, and I would travel from place to place hurting men, women, children who were not of our religion. He was a terrorist. That's his second accomplishment. No one had zeal like him. And thirdly, in his list of accomplishments, he said, I obeyed the law without fault. In other translations, it says he's blameless when it comes to the law. Not that he's sinlessly perfect, but when he kept the law, he was blameless. He was near perfect, and his peers would know that. Paul is your valedictorian. Paul is the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Hebrew of Hebrews. If he had anything to boast, if anyone had anything to boast, it was Paul. And so these are his gains, his inherited privileges, his personal accomplishments. And then you know what he calls them? First of all, he moves them to the lost column. And he calls them garbage. Garbage is a very nice word. He doesn't use garbage in the Greek. It's more like horse manure or poop. Yes, your pastor said poop only because Paul did. So I have ground. It is feces. It is dung. All the things that I have accomplished in my life, which are serious accomplishments, which none of you can boast, I count that all as lost, and I actually consider them garbage. Why? Verse 8, compared to the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. I consider it all garbage because of the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. This is the only place where Paul says of Jesus, my Lord. It's intensely personal, intimate, and profound. Because of the surpassing worth and value of who Jesus is, I count all that in comparison as garbage, horse manure. He goes on in verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. What are we boasting? 
dear Christian? Is it the denomination we're a part of? Is it our quiet demeanor? Is it our friend group? Is it the people we read or the translation of the Bible we read or the podcast we listen to or the pastors we follow? What do we boast in? I see very little of Christians valuing and enjoying Christ. To see him as precious. To want to read about him because he is precious. That when we read the Bible, we're learning the heart of an infinitely amazing, supremely valuable God. Rather, we are not unlike the Pharisees. That we become a Christian somewhere, there's a stamp, and we just coast. There is no joy. It becomes legalism. I serve more than you. I read more than you. I pray more than you. And we're just sizing each other up. If we're to be united, as we spoke about last week, if we're to be truly united, we don't do that by tuning ourselves to one another. If you're in an orchestra and you have all these instruments and you have all these singers and compo- no, not composers, but you have all these instruments, you tune yourself to the composer who hits that forky thing and it makes that sound and you tune your instrument. I'm not a musician. I've just seen this happen. It's a conductor, like a train conductor, music conductor. So you, you hit that forky thing and it makes that sound and you're tuning your instrument to that. Our great conductor is Christ. We tune ourselves to him, what his life is like, what his attitude is like. And when we tune ourselves to him, we then tune ourselves to one another. Do we not? If we're following after him, we're on mission with him. We're passionate for the things he's passionate for. Which is primarily the glorification of himself. Making himself famous. That people would know Jesus above all things. Because that's why we exist. Is to know Christ. And we don't do that through our efforts. Because we will never do enough. We will never do enough, but Christ has done enough. And we rest in what the gospel has accomplished on our behalf. And we can truly rest. We can truly enjoy one another. We can truly be confessional. We must know him. I want to close with this quote from a man named D.A. Carson. <clears throat> D.A. Carson, he's a, he's a scholar. He's a gentleman. His father was actually uh, ministering. He was a pastor in Quebec. When I first had this journey in starting the Northern Collective and becoming a pastor myself, uh, an older gentleman, he gave me a book. It's called The Life of an Ordinary Pastor. And it was the life of D.A. Carson's dad, who was in Montreal. He had a congregation of maybe 20, 25 people. It was just such a precious book for me, and it still is, in a time when we're talking about church growth all the time social media blitzing, giving things, initiatives. And just, just everything's so fast. 
And it's just the quiet life of a faithful man who had his flaws. But it was the life of an ordinary pastor. And this is D.A. Carson. This is his son writing of this passage we just read. He says, Most who read these pages, I suspect, will not be greatly tempted to boast about their Jewish ancestry and ancient rites of race and religious heritage. But we may be tempted to brag about still less important things. Our wealth, our status, our education, our emotional stability, our family, our political or business successes, our denominational alignments, or even about which version of the Bible we use. Be careful of people like that. They tend to regard everyone who is outsider, their little group, as somehow inferior. Somewhere along the way, they inadvertently or even intentionally and maliciously imagine that faith in Christ Jesus and delight in him is little less important than their personal accomplishments. Instead, look around for those who constant, whose constant confidence is Jesus Christ, whose constant boast is Jesus Christ, whose constant delight is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of their worship, the center of their gratitude, the center of their love, the center of their hope. Emulate those whose constant confidence and boast is in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, teach us to rest in your accomplishments. Teach us to rest in who you are and what you've done and unite us. Let us not divide unnecessarily. Would you show us, and even my own heart, where I tend to be proud or boastful in the things that I've accomplished, but would we all recognize that the things we have, the breath we breathe, and the heartbeat that we have borrowed is from you. And we give it all back to you for your glory and our joy. Amen.